that feeling of like being sucker punched is, is really hard. I let myself boohoo for a few minutes or for a day or two days. And then I just, again, think of those families, those different specific families that have touched my life. And that just says, okay, brush myself off and I'm going to just keep going. Welcome to the Unforgotten Families podcast, an action-oriented community of hope, inclusivity, and compassion for all medically fragile families. This podcast was created to spread awareness, share solutions, and advocate for the needs of these resilient individuals. It's our hope that the information and stories we share will inspire and empower you to join us in advocating for these families and help to ensure that they are never forgotten. Hello, Tough Advocates. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Unforgotten Families podcast. We are really excited about this episode because today we have Hani Feldman and Alex Koloskis from MGA Home Care with us. Hani is a registered nurse who has been serving the pediatric population for over 15 years. From everything from being an in-home pediatric nurse to now working in government affairs and supporting families nationwide. Alex is an attorney with extensive experience in public health policy and administration. She has also worked with Colorado Medicaid for years, so she deeply understands the ins and outs of the Family CNA program. And most importantly, they are two of the most hardworking and knowledgeable advocates for this cause. And so we are just really grateful to have you both. So thank you guys for being here with us. Thanks, Garrett. Thanks for having us. So. I would love to just start a little bit with your backgrounds. So maybe, Hani, if you could just share a brief, I kind of talked about it in the intro, but just share a little bit about your background with pediatrics and in this world. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, as you said, I uh, started my healthcare career as a NICU nurse, neonatal intensive care, and specialized in micropremies. So 23 and 24-week neonates that weren't quite ready to be born, but then through the NICU started their long journey. And I'd like to say that I, you know, planned this natural progression into the home care because it really made sense. You know, we talk about a child's journey that's born as a preemie or starts their life in intensive care and needs to then have support in the home, whether it's, you know, technology, dependence, or just a lot of medications and different nursing interventions. Once I left the hospital, I moved into home care and I started as a working in the field, clinical supervisor, clinical director. I did clinical education, uh, process improvement, and then not in a typical career path for a nurse. The CEO, Brad, who was with the previous company that I was working for, he really kept saying, I I need you in government affairs. And like I said, that's not a typical uh, place that nurses usually end up. And I argue with him a little bit and say, I'm not really sure uh, I'm going to be the best person to do that. You know, I don't have a poli science degree. I don't really have much experience in legislation or advocacy. But he really drilled into me that when we are talking to policymakers or legislators or a governor of a state, and we're talking about our medically fragile population, there's no better person to have that conversation than a nurse. 
also that plunge and really transitioned to that government affairs role and did that for a number of years. And it was it was really incredible how it was it was very true, right? We need to have lobbyists, we need to have consultants to get certain you know, get certain initiatives accomplished on behalf of our patients when you have a nurse who is able to really speak about the trials and all the hardships that families go through. I mean, it's really good for that person to be a nurse and that really catapulted me into to doing that and had a, just a lot of great success in working with different states on reimbursement issues, on regulatory challenges, on scope of practice challenges. And we had a lot of success and it's it's really been great work, part of you know many coalitions across the country of different providers. We've worked together. It's been very satisfying. Now I've been at MGA Home Care for almost two years now, and I wear a couple of hats as a chief clinical officer and as well as that government affairs role. And just really happy to be sort of combining that clinical experience and overseeing that clinical function for our company, as well as continuing on with our great work on lobbying and advocacy. I really love how your boss kind of nudged you to work towards this different to have someone that's been in the home that understands the care needs and understands who can actually provide that care. So someone like you, you actually know not only clinically, but because of your personal experience. So that's awesome. Thank you so much for being here with us. And Alex, I would love for you to share a little of your background as well. I started in law school. I would begin kind of my passion for the home care industry. Started there in the elder and health law clinic because that's one of the only ways to get actual lawyer experience in law school is to join a clinic. Through my work there, I ended up representing clients in Medicare and Medicaid appeals when their benefits had been denied and got some good experience, some really, some really in-depth like working with families and homes to understand what their benefits had been had been giving them and then what was kind of taken away and it, it became very real for me. So I when I came home from California after law school to Colorado, I joined Colorado Governor's Office of Legal Counsel and dabbled in a lot of stuff, but it always kind of brought me back to Medicaid and healthcare policy. So I ended up at the state um, Department of Healthcare Policy and Financing in Colorado, <clears throat> where I ran the home health program and eventually a slew of other benefits that that serve similar populations. So kind of got my feet wet there with creating policy, doing stakeholder engagement, um, working with the federal government and providers. And then about a year ago, got that uh, cosmic thumb in the back as I joked with Hani and, you know, met her and joined up with MGA and just have been loving my experience here and doing government affairs and now the chief compliance officer for MGA. So it's been been a ride and happy to be here. Well, I am really grateful to have you both here. And, you know, I want to maximize our time because I know how often you guys, well, I know how hard you guys are working at all times on this and on other things. I'd love to just start if maybe, maybe Hani, you'd be a good one to start with of just sharing some of the struggles that families are experiencing in the home when they have a medically fragile child. Sure, absolutely. Like I say, I can't speak as well for this, the struggles as a family member themselves, but having spent many hundreds of hours in the home with these families and on the phone with these families, I would say what I hear 
as far as consistent teams, staffing is such a huge issue. Getting a qualified nurse that is not just qualified and is able to check off all the skills on a competency sheet, but truly has all of the the, the personality traits that, that mesh with the family, right? And, and one one personality that's going to work with one family isn't going to work with another family. And it's, it truly is like a matchmaking system, right? It's, it's, it's like, it's clinical, it's personality, it's, it's geography, right? Because it, it, if you want to have a nurse that's going to show up consistently to your home, it needs to be one that doesn't have to drive an hour and a half each way, because that's, that's not very feasible either. It's getting that, that consistent and reliable staffing. These families, the, the burden that they carry just to, to care for their children is massive. It's it's twenty four seven, and sometimes I, I say like it's it's it feels like twenty eight seven. Like it's just they need help. They're entitled to help. Obviously, they're the protections for these families that allow them to get these services covered through Medicaid or through a commercial payer. And the the problem is is that they have the ability to get this this coverage, but yet. Due to so many factors, the, the nursing shortage is such a primary piece of it. It's really hard. It is really hard. Providers are fighting for fighting with hospitals, and especially during this pandemic, fighting for hospitals, for nurses, fighting with facilities for nurses. It just seems like there's just never enough nurses to provide all of the care that our families need. I think that would be just the biggest challenge that I feel that they're facing. Yeah. And, and there's so many levels. You're right. It's like so hard to like describe them all. It's like what you were saying is a good point. How far away is the child? Like, I don't even want my best friend in my home for longer than 40 hours a week. Right. So you have to find the right personality fit. They have the right have the right skill set. And that's just before we even said there's a nursing shortage and that the nurses are actually getting paid ex- expen- ex- exceptionally more in the hospital than they make in the home. And so, yeah, I'm totally with you with all of that. And I'd love for for you to explain why exactly family members being able to become their child's CNA, why that actually benefits them. There, There are many different ways that we can solve the issues facing the these families of medically complex children, right? I mean, I listed one, which is consistent staffing. There's a whole bunch of them. And I would say, in order to fix really all of them, we, we have to have many, many options and many fixes, right? It's staffing with regulatory change and the way these programs are, you know, regulated through the state. I mean, there, there are lots of different solutions, but I would say you're looking at filling up a toolbox so that we can like properly fix the problem. One of the tools in that toolbox is to allow families or close friends or, or people in the community to provide care for for the child. That is one really, really important toolbox. It's not something that is done everywhere, as you know, as I'm sure you've spoken about on this podcast before. And families that are listening, they're definitely nodding their heads and saying, you know, like we want to be able to do that. This care is going to have to be provided by somebody. And it's not always an option for every family to step in and be this paid caregiver. But for some families, it's it's truly, it's not just a good option. It is perfect option for them. 
And it is one that would really, really make a difference in providing complete coverage, providing that safe care in the home, which is the lowest cost to payers and the highest quality because people really want to be at home. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree with you. I always say like, it's not for every family. Some, some parents might say, I would rather have a break and that's what I want. And some parents, it literally might completely change their life to be able to do this. And how I feel about it is that every family that has this type of care, every child that needs this care, the family should have the choice. They should just have the choice. That should be the bottom line. If they would like to do it, great. If they can't, that's okay, but they should have the choice to do that. So I'd love to talk to you, Alex, too, and have maybe you explain people that don't know, how does it work in other states? Like, and, and, I, and I understand that every state is different. So it's more of a general conversation, how the state is obligated through home care-based services to provide this care, how it works in other states and, and how it works in Colorado and how we're trying to help make it work in other states as well. Sure. Set me up with the easy question. (laughs) How it basically works is states have, uh, well, at least with Medicare and Medicaid, in the Medicaid program, which is is the majority of the payer source for for these types of services, um, states have optional benefits that they must cover as part of their agreement with the federal government with CMS. And then they have, I'm sorry, optional benefits they can cover and then mandatory benefits they must cover. So home health is one of the benefits that states must cover. Private duty nursing, that continuous one-to-one shift-based care with a nurse, that higher acuity, is an optional benefit that states can choose to cover, and states do choose to cover it in very different ways. So when you're going into a state to try to tackle what is their continuum of care, kind of what is the array of services available by payers, that's what you're looking at is the structure of their home health benefit, do they have a private duty nursing benefit? And what does that look like? Is it a state plan service? Is it a waiver service that's really specific to a subset of their population and some other considerations there? So how it works in Colorado around the relative caregiver allowance, I'll call it, is the home health benefit in Colorado is a state plan benefit that's available to everybody. The way Colorado tackled this issue was to just allow any family member whose child is eligible for home health services, that person can go become, get a CNA license, certified nurse aid license and become a CNA. And then they're treated as an, an employee of the home health agency who's paid by the state and then pays the employee. And the state in Colorado, the Medicaid program, doesn't do any other digging to associate, you know, to tag a family member as a CNA versus if that child had a stranger come be their CNA. Um, And so they chose, I like to, you know, talk about it as a spectrum. Colorado is probably the most open model. It's just a home health benefit. They have CNA services and parents are allowed to become CNAs. The department doesn't really get in the mix there. Other states though, like Arizona, where we've worked really hard to get the, the licensed health aid kind of arm of the program running has taken a much different approach. I I would say almost the other end of the spectrum. They've really decided to create a special discipline called licensed health aides for parents specifically or family members. And in fact, you must be a family member uh, of the recipient to become an LHA in Arizona. And this is all kind of 
the rules are being drafted for this now, but um, that's another take on it that's specific to their, you know, their Medicaid program and their population and the way they wanted to tackle this. So um, we see a lot of different approaches and perspectives, and there's a lot of regulatory differences between states, whether it be their funding sources and their agreement with CMS or their licensing entity, like the, the department that actually creates the rules around what makes them a CNA versus a licensed health aid. When Honey was describing kind of this need to, I think that those the interplay there of the regulations and the differences by state kind of still all come back to what are, what are we solving here? And I think a big part of it is recognizing, regardless of state or payer or license, that family members are performing this level of skilled care. Um, they're performing these tasks that take a certain amount of skills and education um, and sometimes supervision to perform. And when we're trying to expand this concept nationally and have these conversations, a big part of it is really that acknowledgement of the sheer amount of work and skill and attention that's required and is much is above and beyond the responsibilities of a parent. Therefore, based on your skills and, and the things you're having to do, we want to support you um, in education and supervision and hopefully in reimbursement as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what you're saying is also a good point is like, what is what are we trying to do? Well, this these kids need care. And there's also an option that a parent could say, I'd like them to be in a facility, which no one wants that. And but that child needs the care. There's not enough nurses to provide it. And so who's the best caregiver in general? The parent. So if they go get a license, why not let them be the one that's being paid for the program? From one other angle, I'd like to talk to you before we move on is when you go to Arizona, when you go to other states, what is the benefit to the state? Of course, what we care most about is the kid and the family. But what does the state want to hear and what are they hearing when you're moving into a state like Arizona? Having come from that world, it is mostly individuals that are running these programs and the departments themselves are trying to find the most cost-effective, efficient way to provide the continuum of care that's needed. It's not always about cutting things down to make it most the cheapest option, while home care usually is the cheapest option. It's really uh, an effort to drill down and make sure that people are getting the right level of acuity of care delivered to them in the right setting. That's usually the goal for most state Medicaid programs that I've interacted with. And in that folds in a, a cost savings to taxpayers. If you're doing it right, then you're delivering the right services to the right individuals at the right time at the right price. And that's how you have an effective program. So when we're approaching a state like Arizona, those are the types of things we're trying to show them is that for, for families where this does make sense, look, this is a much this is a much cheaper and acuity uh, appropriate appropriate acuity level care versus you spending money for an RN or an LPN to come in um, or even a different program entirely. This is kind of right place, right time, right level. So I think that's that's a, the approach of the strategy. And from the fact that you both had a big part in you know moving the needle in Arizona, for anyone that's listening, maybe it's a parent in another state or maybe it's someone that's in a similar role as you in another state. What moves the needle? What needs to happen 
in different states to like start the movement and make things happen? Yeah, I'll just I'll jump in first, but I would say that if it's a family listening, your voice matters. There's so many different advocacy groups out there. I mean, obviously the Unforgotten Families is one, but there's, you know, informal Facebook groups and there are forums and can't say I'm an expert in social media, but I, I just know that they're out there and they're very vocal. We could be using these forums to get, you know, more organized in terms of a real advocacy effort. I would say providers are, are certainly doing that. We are working together with every single provider that is interested in making sure that families are able to, you know, hopefully be paid in every state to provide care for their child. I mean, I will say that there are providers out there that aren't interested. Sadly, they may look at this as a threat to the business, right? Like it is changing the model. MGA is is very much about, we have to question the status quo just because this is how our business is always run. Doesn't mean we can't change the way it's being done. And that is a win-win for providers. And it's a win-win for families and everybody wins here. So use these forums and these groups that you're a part of to really spread the word and say, this is an option because not every family knows that this is an option. Obviously, families in Colorado are very aware and, and most likely utilizing this part of the state plan to, to get paid to provide care for their child. I would say families in Arizona are really beginning to learn about it and say, wow, this is exciting that this is, this is coming to our state. I love all of that. Thank you so much. Did you want to chime in at all, Alex? Or <laughs> That's a hard act to follow. I think Connie covered most of my points, but I, I would say, yeah, in that in, in that involvement and in that engagement, it's been, and it seems just kind of getting back to fundamentals, but a, a collaborative approach with payers and really kind of getting there in there as a team and as problem solvers, whether you're a family member or a provider or a state or a you know, an employee of a payer, it takes a a long time and a lot of collaboration to to get these things going. And we've seen that play out in Arizona of kind of a little bit of a stutter step to get everybody aligned and on the same page to figure out all the regulatory hurdles or steps, processes that need to be completed. So starting out of the gate with a collaborative approach has definitely been key to success. Absolutely. And this is something that I would love to know from both of you too, is Unforgotten Families is here to support in any way that we can. And so I'd love to know, is there anything that you can think of on a way, because the way that I look at it is there's people doing things all over the country to advocate. And I would love Unforgotten Families to be this place where people can come to, to get information, to collaborate, to connect. I guess just any thoughts around how we can all support this movement together and any ideas that come to mind? Well, I think as Honey mentioned, you know, there's provider groups that are kind of speaking and working in, in different ways in different states. And I would say we're we're fairly in touch with each other. If you're if you're a new provider, you know, definitely reach out to your kind of peers and, and we can all get engaged. If you're a family member, I think Honey's take to to ask your provider what they're doing to get engaged with this space in this space is is an appropriate step. And then also, it seems a little bit like a black hole government sometimes, the way that things operate behind the scenes, or it's not quite clear how to get to the right person. But tenacity there with engaging with your representative actually gets very far very quickly. 
I'm not saying everybody go blow up your local representative, but that's what they're there for. (laughs) They, They do kind of coordinate and get things moving and get us all consolidated into one conversation where we can collaborate. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, we're happy to share our contact information as well, because from the provider side, there's very organized efforts that we are a part of trying to get this program into other states this benefit as an option for families. And Alex said, getting your elected representative on on this case, I mean, that person could be reaching out to us, to the provider group, as well as unforgotten families to say, you know, you know, we want to raise our hands and, and, and we want to be a part of this. And we can certainly direct them into a productive way to do that. I mean, lessons learned in Arizona, which the state has really been a collaboration and a partnership. It's not always, you know, just the angry legislator or the angry parent that's going to get their way in this long process in Arizona. It it, it took a lot of different groups and stakeholders to get together and really just sit down at the table and speak really nicely and say, this is what we want. This is what we think is best for our families. And then seeing that all these other stakeholders like Access and the Board of Nursing and DDD, they all want the best for the families as well. But there are rules to follow. There are hoops to jump through. I mean, it's government doesn't get its reputation for nothing. It comes by it very, very honestly, or sometimes not honestly. But I mean, in this case, I would say, you know, it, it, it has that reputation for things moving slow and a bureaucracy just the way it is. And we have to be really patient, but yet <laughs> aggressive at the same time. I love that. I, I had someone on that. It, he has cerebral palsy and he is a big time advocate and he teaches advocate courses. And that was one of the main points that he said. It's not always about being the loudest. It's about listening and being compassionate and really sharing your story from your heart. And so so I know there's lots of ups and downs. There's probably moments of like, you think, you know, something's happened and then it falls apart or, you know, there's lots of ups and downs in the process of advocacy. I would love to know from both of you, like what makes you so passionate about this? I have certain patients that have changed my life in the course of my professional career. A couple from my days in the NICU and then many in my days in home care. And I have different parts of their lives kind of emblazoned in my brain. The, the struggles, the challenges, the desire to be as normal as a family as they can be with the massive amounts of medical challenges and the, the, the tremendous struggles, exhaustion, the stress that these families face. And I, I kind of just have collected them. I feel like I sometimes carry this huge weight on my shoulders. I just feel extremely motivated to someday be able to like take this weight off of my shoulders and say, we did it. <laughs> these families, they're always going to have these challenges just by nature of what's been, you know, the, the deck of cards that they've been dealt in life. But look at what we've done. They have nurses regularly. Families are able to get seven hours of sleep at night. I mean, things that we take for granted, it doesn't happen. Without nursing, families can't sleep. A basic need, they can't sleep at night. Hold down a job. When they don't have a nurse, they can't go to work. (laughs) When they can't do certain things that we just all take for granted, those of us 
that have the blessing of our health or healthy children, they just don't have that. I would say that's what motivates me or those individuals that I just try to take with me in my professional life because there are days when it is very frustrating. There are days I've had different things that I work so hard on that a governor vetoed or a line item vetoed or get the email saying, yeah, the agency said no, or the board of nursing is not going to go along with that change. And I let myself boohoo for a few minutes or for a day or two days. And then I just, again, think of those families, those different specific families that have touched my life and that just says, okay, brush myself off and I'm going to just keep going. Wow. I love that. Thank you so much for all the work you're doing. It's, it's very beautiful to witness and we appreciate you. Alex, how about you? I mean, again, honey, I think touched on quite a few of mine. I, I have also some families that have stuck with me since clinic days. And I guess additionally, I, I never thought really that I'd be doing corporate compliance for a home health agency. When I was a little girl, I thought I would be a cowgirl. So I'm a a far away from from kind of what I envisioned, but I feel like what keeps me going is, is those families and is this the work. It's like that feeling of like being sucker punched is is really hard. When I'm on this side of the, of the fight, so to speak, I, I felt when I was working for the state and in other roles that there's like a stewardship of financial dollars that's at play there. And you're part, and I was participating in that to the best of my ability. But on on this side of the house, kind of being being on the provider side, I'm closer to the families. And that feels like where I need to be. So it keeps me going. That's beautiful. It's it's so awesome to hear. Like I'm really grateful. I I feel I am totally with you guys. Like goes there's the ups and downs of of this process, and it, it it's just like the moments of thinking about how you know one of the families I interviewed on this podcast. She lived in Arizona and moved to Colorado when their family was they ran out of money. They went bankrupt, and their child was not getting the care they needed. And when they were at the airport, someone was like, "Are you their caregiver?" And they had no clue. And then they found out family CNA program, they got benefits, they had a full-time job, and they went literally from bankrupt having no money to completely changing their life. And she said on the podcast that because she got her CNA license, when her child has their first seizure, she legitimately thinks she saved her son's life because she knew what to do. And her husband was like, how do you know what to do? And she was like, it was my CNA class. And so those are those little moments where you're like, yeah, this this needs to be an option for everyone that decides that it's best for them. So thank you guys for all the work you're doing. And I guess I would just leave space open right here. Um, if there's any thoughts or anything that you guys feel like I didn't ask you that I missed that needs to be shared while we're here together. One maybe component is just that we didn't we didn't dive. A, it's such a large topic, but the the trend uh the trends of just home care being recognized i think nationally as the most appropriate setting for healing we talk about that a lot at mga you know internally and with, with in our work with other providers and payers and stuff but i think there's that kind of in combination with it's it's trending slowly but picking up speed i think it's also coinciding with the trend of recognizing 
the family caregiver as a discipline or as a part of the continuum of care. I'm pointing that out because this already exists. The acknowledgement of relative caregivers is much stronger on the adult side. And I think that's because people have been helping their, their aging parents or disabled parents and they're louder. I guess they've been in the game kind of longer. And so you'll see a lot more organization around relative caregivers, but it's really specific to caring for someone older or disabled. So I think the pediatric space for relative caregivers is kind of catching up here. And we have some lessons to learn from how things have been organized and consolidated and people are collaborating on the adult on the adult side. So I think we're engaging with that work at the federal and state level. But I think it's important to call out that we're we're at a convergence. And I think it's a great time to be having these conversations. Yeah, I agree. And I think that COVID has really accelerated. As home care providers, we have always known that the home is the place where people want to be. And I would say that the pandemic really accelerated the move towards towards home care. I mean, it was certainly going in that direction. That's been a good thing. That's been a, a silver lining of COVID, right? We have to look at all the positives when obviously the past couple of years have been so many awful things have happened. But this is one where it, it just became very apparent. People want to receive care in their homes and in their communities. And we need to just make sure that as home care providers and as families who are advocates, that we are all working together to, to tell our story, to really make the case to payers that not just that home is the place where people want to be, is the lowest cost setting we really have to have regulations that reflect that, as well as reimbursement that reflects that as well. I'm with you 100%. And I just want to thank you both for being here and joining me and joining us. And I also just want to thank you for all the hard work that you're doing and the change that you're making and want to recognize you and give you both flowers for that because you guys are doing a lot of beautiful work. So thank you. Thank you, Garrett. And, you know, thank you on, you know, the Unforgotten Families is a wonderful resource for families, you know, wishing you also so much uh, luck and success in, in continuing to, to be that resource to these families. Thank you so much. For everyone listening, thank you so much for joining us today. I'll put some information on how you guys can get in contact with Alex and Hani on the podcast. And We just appreciate you listening and we look forward to seeing you on the next one. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode with Hani and Alex. We so appreciate the work that they are doing and we are so grateful to have them on the show. We will put some of their contact information in the description so you can reach out to them. And please consider becoming an advocate on our website. If you go to www.theunforgottenfamilies.com and you go to the upper right-hand corner, there's an advocate link. When you become an advocate, we will notify you when there's time to take action in your state and we will keep you up to date with our newsletter. So please consider to become an advocate so that we can make the change that we want to see in the world. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being tough advocates and we will see you on the next episode.